Welcome to the port of modern day Izmir, which was known in ancient times as Smyrna. Today, Izmir is the third largest city in Turkey with approximately six million people calling it home. Izmir is a beautiful and busy place hosting Turkey's second largest port. Even in our modern world, the location of this city makes it a great contributor to Turkey's economy and provides opportunities for business and trading worldwide. But this isn't a new phenomenon. It stretches back throughout history, well before the first century. During the first century, when Jesus wrote his letter to Christians in Smyrna, it was home to over 100,000 people, and it was a strategically vital part of the Roman rule in this region. Smyrna's significance came down to three factors its location, its influence, and its allegiance to Rome. The Gulf of Smyrna is a natural harbor on the Aegean Sea. This geographic feature made Smyrna's location on the coastline of this harbor ideal for trade and travel, and it quickly became a central hub of commerce in the ancient world. Wherever there's trade, there's money, and Smyrna became a very wealthy city. As travelers from around the world journeyed to Smyrna with their goods, they brought their culture and religion with them. And so the city became a melting pot situated on crossroads of the ancient world. The second factor that contributed to its significance was its cultural influence. Smyrna boasted a rich history of poets, authors, and other important citizens. One for an example is Homer, the author of two influential works, the Odyssey and the Iliad. He was born right here in Smyrna. The third reason for Smyrna's importance was the fact that it was known for being very faithful to Rome. In fact, it was one of the first cities in Asia Minor to construct a temple to worship the Emperor Caesar. Because of that faithfulness, they were not hindered by the Roman Empire, and they were left to live their luxurious life that their wealth afforded. There are a few major background pieces of information that will help us better understand Jesus' letter to the believers here in Smyrna. The first piece of information is found here, inside the Agora, or the marketplace at Smyrna. Around this Agora are various inscriptions etched into the marble and the granite columns. These engraved words were essentially opportunities to give rewards or brag about accomplishments of wealthy people or politicians or religious leaders or to celebrate the building of an impressive building. And this was just one of the ways to publicly praise or reward citizens at this time. Another means of rewarding people was the giving of laurel crowns. People could earn a crown for their conquests in battle or their athletic prowess in the games or for their strength in the gladiatorial rings. And the imagery of receiving a crown as a reward would have been really familiar to the people of Smyrna. But the value of the crown was not in the object itself because they were typically just a simple floral arrangement. The value was found in the accomplishment of an impressive feat and in the prestige of the person who rewarded them with the crown. But the average person, they would have never expected to receive a crown. Crowns were for elite athletes or war heroes. If you were a common person, it just wasn't gonna happen. And with this cultural reality in mind, Jesus wrote to the believers in Smyrna. But we will see that his approach to answering the question, who should receive a crown, stood in sharp contrast to the rest of the culture. A second piece of background information is that Smyrna was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to the Roman goddess Roma. In order to show their allegiance to Rome, they built this temple in 195 BC. About 200 years later in the first century AD, Smyrna became a center of the emperor worship, having won the privilege from the Roman Senate by building the first temple in honor of Tiberius. 
Under Domitian, the emperor at the time of the writings of Revelation, emperor worship became compulsory for every Roman citizen on the threat of death. Once a year, a citizen had to burn incense on the altar to Caesar, after which he was issued a certificate. Now, obviously, this caused great turmoil for the Christ follower in the city. Smyrna was a city brimming with national pride, influence, and strong connections to the leaders of the largest empire in the world. And there, in this city, was a band of Christians living out their faith and attempting to stand for what they believed God was calling them to stand for. The results in their lives every single day were catastrophic. In fact, just 60 years after this letter was written by Jesus to this church, one of the Apostle John's disciples, Polycarp, was burned to death at the stake for the amusement of the people of Smyrna. His crime? Refusing to declare that Caesar is Lord. Yet Jesus writes this letter to them with words of encouragement, words of perseverance, words that would give this suffering church the strength they needed to endure. Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge Church. We're excited to have you here this morning. Whether you're joining us from one of our campuses or you're with us online, thank you for being here this morning. And I hope you're excited for God's Word. I hope you're excited, Webster, Greece, Aranda Coit, and Henrietta, and to dig into God's Word. And last week, we, we started a brand new series called Seven. And what we did is we sent a video team all the way to modern-day Turkey to, to, to look at the locations where Jesus, through a guy named John, wrote seven letters to seven churches with seven distinct messages. And what's amazing is that happened over thousands of years ago, but yet it's still relevant to us today. And last week we started this series by looking at maybe the most popular, well-known church, the church in Ephesus, where Jesus speaks directly to their issues, where he says, hey, you lost your first love. You've lost, you've drifted away from me. You've taken the best thing and replaced it with good things. And how easy is that for us in our walk with God to replace God with good things? And today we're jumping into week two, the church in Smyrna. And as we start, I just want to start by asking you a question. How many of you would say, at all of our locations, you know, just throw up your hand, that you would say you're a runner. You like to run on a regular basis. Go ahead and toss your hand up in the air. Yeah, be proud. It's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, so we have some runners. And I just want to, you know, offer a confession. I hate running. Can I get an amen? amen? Ah, that's what I'm talking about. I just think running is one of those things where, you know, it's almost as much physical as it is mental. And, you know, about five years ago, my wife and I, we started an international adoption. And two years into that international adoption, we got a phone call from someone we knew very well. And they were putting on a 5K race. And they wanted to sponsor our adoption. And so we were so excited. We were honored. We were like, wow, this is amazing. But then it hit me. This means I have to run in the race, doesn't it? And so I was like, okay, I got some running gear, and, and my wife and I, we signed up for the race, and before you knew it, it was race day, we were meeting new people, and we're at the starting line. Forgot to mention one detail, my wife is seven months pregnant, okay, so she's running by my side, she's really competitive, and so before you know it, the gun goes off, and we're running, and we're running, and we're running, and 
We get to this place where this guy is holding this huge white sign, and it says, congratulations, you finished mile one. And I'm thinking, like, I haven't even broken a sweat yet. I'm feeling pretty good. Like, hey, you know, running ain't that bad. And so we keep running and running and pushing until we come to the next guy, and he's holding a big sign, and he says, congratulations, mile two is finished. And I'm thinking, man, maybe running isn't that bad. Like, I, I, I don't feel like, I'm, I feel really good. I feel like I'm just kind of getting into the groove of things. And so we keep running and we run. And you look over the horizon and you can see this third guy. And you know what his sign's going to say. Like, hey, congratulations, mile three is complete. You're almost done. And as we're caressing the horizon to this third guy, everything changes. I just begin to get this massive cramp in my side. And as I'm running, it feels like someone is running beside me, punching me in the side of the gut. Not only do I start cramping, but my knees start to ache and crack. And it's like my body is basically just saying, why are you running? Why are you doing this? And so I'm thinking, okay, if I'm feeling this way, Obviously, my seven-month pregnant wife has to be hurting as well. And so being the caring husband that I am, I look over to my wife, and she immediately looks back to me, and she's running, and she smiles, and she says, isn't this great? <laughs> no, honey, it's not great. But every good runner, every long-distance runner, now just to clarify, a 5K is not a long-distance run. But every good long-distance runner knows in a marathon, there comes this moment where you hit a wall. For a marathon, it's usually mile marker 20, where runners hit into this wall where their body begins to cry out like, stop, give up, throw in the towel. And they say what separates good runners from amazing runners is those runners who can persevere, who can endure the pain and press on. And what's interesting is we start week two, that's the message Jesus had to this church in Smyrna. It was, hey, you're enduring such great pain and suffering for my name. I'm asking you to endure. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter two, we're going to look at this letter. Revelation chapter two, you can use your iPhone, your iPad, you can turn in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to provide one for you. It's going to be on page 991. And one thing you need to know about this letter is it's one of, the, one of only two of the letters of the seven where Jesus offers no correction. The only churches in the seven is Smyrna and Philadelphia that receive no correction from Jesus. They get encouragement. And that's interesting. And we'll pick up the letter in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, where he begins. He says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. And now, if you weren't here last week, you, you, you'll notice that Jesus has some trends in the way he writes these letters. As you read them through the seven weeks, you'll notice that they're set up pretty similar. And what Jesus does is the same thing he did with Ephesus. He begins by introducing himself. He begins by identifying who he is. And he says to the church in Smyrna, I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the God who was and always will be. But then he continues. He says, I'm also the one who died and came to life again. Now, these words were significant because they almost had two meanings. Jesus, the first one, was the obvious. He's the Savior who 
died on the cross, who defeated death and rose again. He's identifying himself as the victorious Lord. Hey, I'm, I'm the Savior who who's went to the cross, defeated death, and rose again on the third day. But the second meaning might have had almost as much significance as that because those these words were a subtle reference to Smyrna's history. You see, the city in Smyrna was known to be a city that died and came back to life again. In their history, there was this massive earthquake that literally wiped out the entire city. Every building that they had was demolished in this earthquake. And through Roman help, they rebuilt their city from ground zero. And they were known to be a city that died and came back to life again. And I find it so interesting that Jesus uses these words in two ways. It's almost as Jesus is meeting this city right where it's at. And isn't that true for our life today is that Jesus meets us right where we are. Jesus meets us right in the middle of our circumstances and what we're enduring. I mean, this is what I love, and this is what separates Christianity from all other religions, is because most other gods, most other false gods, they stand on their, their pedestal and say, if you want to worship me, you come and worship me. But our Savior said, hey, I'll leave heaven, and I'll meet you right in the middle of your life right now. That's what I love about Jesus, is he's a personal God who meets us right in the middle of our mess, our brokenness, in the middle of our good times and our bad times. Maybe you've experienced this before. I mean, have you ever been there where maybe you're at a worship concert or you're at a church service and it felt like the communicator was speaking right at you? Where he, it was almost like he knew what was going on in your life when he wrote the sermon or the message. You ever been there? I've been there for in my life. We're like, how does he know this about me? And it has nothing to do with the communicator. It has everything to do with a God who knows exactly what you're going through and he meets you right in the middle of your life. And I'm so thankful that God chooses to meet us right where we are, just as he does to this church. This happened in my life in one significant way. I remember when I was recovering from lung surgery, and I was at the weakest place in my life. I could barely get out of the hospital bed. I had tubes in me, and I was just depressed at my lowest, and I was weak. And one day in the hospital, I turned on some worship music, and there was this song that I listened to. It was actually the day it, the song was released. It's a song by Hillsong United called Cornerstone. It's a song we're going to sing in our service today. But in that song, there was this one line that I hung on to. It was this one line that kept me going and fighting. It was this line. It says, weak made strong. And it was almost as if Jesus released that song on that day for me to keep fighting, to keep enduring. And that's the amazing thing about our Savior is he meets us right in the middle of our lives. He doesn't ask us to move. He, asks, he says, I'll come to you. I'll pursue you. And that's what he does to this church when he uses these words, who died and came to life again. But he continues. He says this in verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And again, you see these words, I know. Jesus speaks, I see what's going on. I, I hear your cries for help. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now, you have to understand what was taking place in this city. You see, Smyrna was the first city to build temples in honor of Caesar, the Roman Caesar. And they built these temples to worship Caesar, a man, as God. 
And so every citizen in this area had this choice to make. You burn incense to Caesar, you declare Caesar as Lord, or you suffer the consequences. And this put Christians in a precarious situation. They were faced with a choice. Do I declare Caesar as Lord knowing that he's not my Lord and Savior? Or do I follow Jesus with my whole heart? The problem was, is if you decided to follow Jesus, it meant you would suffer. It meant you would face persecution. It meant really your life. That was what was at stake for these Christians, is if you decided to to ignore Caesar and follow Jesus, you were going to be beaten, you were going to be hurt, and ultimately you were going to give up your life to follow Jesus. The Greek word in, in this passage where it says, I know your afflictions, that Greek word actually means to be crushed. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, I know for your faith you're being crushed for me. You're being destroyed for me. And Jesus is speaking, and we know that reality a little bit because we've experienced pain in our life. Pain is a reality of our world. Because of sin and our disobedience, pain is something that we all endure. It doesn't matter who you are today. You can't get around pain. Whether you run from it or not, we're all going to endure pain. We're all going to come into circumstances that hurt us in life. And as Jesus says these words, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. It's almost as he's saying, hey, I recognize and I understand your pain. Do you understand that today? That Jesus recognizes and he understands your pain. He's not a distant God. In fact, he's not a God who's ignorant to pain. When Jesus says to this church, I know, it's almost as if he's referring to the fact that he's been there before. It's almost as he's saying to this church, hey, I've walked in your shoes because they did the same thing to me. Because of who I was, they hung me on the cross, they whipped me, and they beat me, and they killed me. And it's almost as Jesus is saying, hey, I get it. I've walked in your shoes. I've felt pain. And again, this is why I love Jesus as my personal Savior, is because when I suffer in life and when I go through hard times in life, he's not a God who doesn't understand or empathize with me. He's a God who gets it because he's walked through it. And it's the same thing for you. When you experience pain in your life, Jesus understands that reality, and he gets it. He's been there. He's done it. But there's something that I don't think we get in this passage. I think there's something going on in the church in Smyrna that we as American Christians, we don't really get. Because as Americans, we have the freedom to worship without persecution. I mean, every Sunday we have the choice at four locations to come to church freely and not worry or be afraid of what might happen to us. I mean, as a a pastor, I have the freedom to stand on a stage in front of thousands of people and to declare who Jesus is and not worry about a government that's going to come and hang me in a public display. And I don't think we get this reality of what's taking place in Smyrna. People were putting their lives on the line to follow Jesus, and I don't think that's something we understand as American Christians. But do you realize that there are people all around our world That every day, to follow Jesus, they put their life on the line. Right now, there are Christians in caves worshiping Jesus because if they come above the ground, they'll be killed. 
There's Christians who are being mocked and scorned all around our world just to follow the same Jesus that we do. And I don't think we get that. In fact, let me share some numbers with you. Do you realize that each month, 214 church properties are destroyed around our world? Maybe they're huts, maybe they're stone buildings, but they are obliterated because they stand for Jesus. Can you imagine that? One Sunday you just show up to church and the building's gone because someone didn't like Jesus. That's what Christians around our world face. Do you realize that there are 772 forms of violence committed against Christians each month that don't cause death? Some Christians are raped, they're beaten, they're tied to a car and dragged. 7,500 Christians each month die because they believe in Jesus. That's 242 per day. This is something we don't get. That's something we don't have to be afraid of because we get to come to church freely and openly without fear or trepidation. Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their government or surrounding neighbors. And I wanted this to become alive to you today. I wanted you to understand that this is a reality in 2017. And so I want to share a woman's story with you who is a Christian in Syria, and see how it's impacted not only her, but her family. And so as I play this video, I want to warn you up front. There's a little bit of graphic violence in this video. And so if you have a kid in here that you don't want to see, you have time and freedom to get out. It doesn't start until about the three-minute marker. So check out this story. We were praying for revival, believing God would do a big work in Syria. Then the war came. Now the terrorists are attacking Christian homes, churches, and even our children. Their goal is to empty Syria of its Christians. We hate the spirit of Islam that is destroying our country but we love our Muslim neighbors. They come to us and say, in the name of our God, terrorists rape and kill, where is God? We tell them about Jesus, and many are coming to know him. Still others say, we are like living in hell. One day, while I was praying, I asked God what he would have me do to be his witness. But he only asked me, will you give me your life? As I prayed, I understood he wanted all of me. And I said yes. If the time came, I was willing to die for Jesus. The next day, while I was praying, I asked God again what he would have me do. This time, he asked me, are you willing to give me your husband's life? It is not easy to be ready to die. My husband and I prayed about this together. We said yes to God. 
The third day was the most difficult. On this day, God asked me if I was willing to give up my children's lives. The terrorists know who we are and that we share Jesus with Muslims. It is not safe for our family. My husband and I prayed and fasted, and together we agreed. God gave us our precious children. He has the freedom to take them back. When we agreed to put our children on the altar, I knew I had to tell them the truth. I told them that it was possible that men with swords may come through our door, men who didn't know Jesus. They may say bad things to us and try to force us to convert to Islam. But no matter what they say, we should not answer them. We should only tell them that Jesus loves them and that we forgive them. I told them that we might see some blood and have some pain, but it would only be for a little while. <laughs> that we should just close our eyes. And when we open them, we will be with Jesus. Am I a good mother? Do you have to tell my children such things? I also told them that as long as God wants us to be safe, we will be safe, that He is in control. Even during the bloodshed, during the killing, He is carrying our future. This is what it means to be a Christian in Syria. I think that gives you just a small taste of what Christians around the world deal with on a regular basis. That gives you a small glimpse of what the church in Smyrna was dealing with. And you know, it led me to really two questions that I had to answer and I would love to share with you this morning. The first one is this. What has your faith cost you? What has that decision that you made to make Jesus Christ the leader of your life to surrender to him, what, it is, what has it cost you? Because at the end of the day, if your faith hasn't really cost you anything, you might want to check the claim of faith that you actually have. Because even as American Christians, God's word is, is really clear. He says in his word to his disciples, he says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, if anybody wants to follow me, they must pick up their cross, deny themselves and follow me. And so as a Christian, as you walk with Jesus, and the more you walk with Jesus, the more it causes you to sacrifice, the more it causes you to say no to the things of the world and to sacrifice. So I'd ask you, what does your faith really cost you? Has it cost you anything? But then the second one is really more dealing with pain and suffering. Because we all deal with pain and we all deal with suffering. 
But what are you facing today that is more than you can take? What are you facing today? Maybe it's pain you're encountering or suffering that you're encountering that is just more than you can handle. It's a burden you're getting weary carrying. You see, maybe today you're a parent and you've invested in your children. You've tried to teach them what it means to walk with Jesus. But as they grew older, some of them decided to walk away. And that haunts you. The guilt and the pain of that decision in their life, it's a burden that you can barely hold on to anymore. Or maybe today it's a health condition and where you've been diagnosed with something. And the pain of that diagnosis throughout your life, it just feels like something you can't hold on to anymore. I think we all know this pain and suffering are real in our lives. Doesn't matter who you are, you're going to encounter pain in this world. It's the result of sin, it's the result of disobedience to God. But I think there's something we have to understand. And I think it's something the church in Smyrna got, and I think it's something that Leanna's story showed us is this it's the enemy uses pain to destroy our faith, but God uses pain to build our faith. That is the truth today. When you encounter pain and suffering in your life, the enemy will use that pain. He will be at his loudest and he will whisper in your ear, Hey, God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you. Why would he allow this to happen? If he really did, he would take this away from you and he will whisper in your ear, let go, leave God, walk away, because he wants to destroy your faith. But on the opposite end of that spectrum, God uses the pain in your life to build you up, to take you places that you would never go. I mean, think about it. In your life, when you grew as a Christian, usually in my life, it's been those moments that I would have never cho chosen to go through that experience, but God used it in my life to take me places that I never thought I'd go through pain. And God uses pain to make you and break you and lead you and guide you. But the question is, is which voice are you listening to? Is the pain in your life making you or is it breaking you? Are you listening to the lies of the devil or are you allowing God through the hard times in life to take you to places to grow your faith and to stretch who you are in your walk with God? It's interesting. Verse 9, we read it already, but yet I left out a piece of the scripture that I wanted to save for now. Verse 9, it says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And when I first read this, I was like, man, God, that doesn't make any sense. That just doesn't make sense. How do you look at Christians who are being butchered in your name and say, hey, good news, you're rich? It doesn't make sense. There's something in me that, that bothers. I mean, how do you go to the hospital and see somebody who's, who's dying of cancer and is going through chemo and say, hey, don't worry, good news, you're rich. It doesn't make sense. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to us as Christians, hey, life on this earth can get as bad as it can get. I mean, you can suffer as much as any other person suffers. But you are rich because of the gospel and because of what Jesus did on the cross. You are rich in Jesus. That's all you need to get through the suffering of this world. You are rich because of what Jesus did for you. And there will become a time where you don't have to suffer anymore. This is what Jesus was saying to this church that was suffering. He says, in Christ, in me, you can be at your best even when life is at its worst. 
You can be at your best even when life is at its worst. And let me tell you, this is one of the most, this is one of the most powerful witnessing tools that we know. Because the world will not understand this. People who don't know Jesus won't understand this. Because when there is no hope and you have hope, they won't get it. When there is no peace and you still have peace, they won't get it. And this is one of the greatest ways where you can be praying and investing and inviting your neighbors and your work coworkers is when you go through difficult times in life and you hang on to the hope that you are rich in Jesus, they will ask, why are you different? Because in our culture, when life sucks, our attitude sucks. It's just natural. When life gets bad, we just want to act bad. But it's interesting, as Christians, we're called when life is hopeless, we still have hope. And this is one of the greatest ways where you can live. When life is at its worst, you can still be at your best because of what Jesus did for you. And this church got to see this lived out in their pastor, a guy named Polycarp. See, in Smyrna, Polycarp was the pastor of this church. He was the leader. And he lived this verse out. In fact, he actually read these words in, in Revelation 2.9, that you are rich in Jesus. Because 60 years later, after the writings of this letter, 60 years later, Polycarp, the pastor of this church, was faced with a decision. You see, Caesar brought him in front of thousands of people. He brought him to the amphitheater. And he brought thousands of people, and he gave Polycarp this decision. Because here's what Caesar thought. He thought, hey, if I can get their pastor to bend the knee to Caesar, I'll stop all of Christianity right here and right now. And so he gave Polycarp this decision. He brought him in front of thousands of people, and he says, hey, declare Caesar as Lord or die. That was the choice he had. I mean, can you imagine that for a second? Like, hey... You're faced with that same decision. All you got to do is just bend your knee just one time. doesn't mean that much, right? Just bend your knee, worship Caesar as Lord, and continue on with your life and your Christianity, right? But Polycarp looks in the eyes of the most powerful man on this earth, Caesar, and this is what he says to him. He says, 86 years have I served him. That's Jesus. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And immediately, he was burned alive. And it was almost like Polycarp was saying, you know what? You can make me suffer all I can handle on this earth. But because of my Savior, I am rich. I wonder if you live that way. I mean, do we honestly live that way where we recognize that we are rich because of what Jesus has done? But he continues, verse 10, he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I find this really fascinating, that Jesus is writing a letter to encourage the church in Smyrna. And you would think that the only way to encourage people who are suffering is to say, hey, good news, the pain's going to go away. Right? Like, hey, good news, I'm going to put an end to your pain. But that's not what Jesus says at all. He says, he says, in fact, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Jesus tells them, like, hey, it's going to get worse. Really encouraging, isn't it? But what's interesting is I, I find true in Christians and myself am guilty of this. Is I find myself praying all the time, God, please take this burden away from me. God, please take this pain away from me. And yet I'm praying away the very thing that God wants to use in my life to stretch me and to grow me. And Jesus doesn't encourage the church in Smyrna by saying, hey, it's going to get good. I'm going to bless you now. He says, no, it's going to get worse. But you don't have to be afraid. 
you can still be faithful. And he gives us some takeaways that we can live out today in 2017. The first thing he says, he says, drown out your fear with your faith. Drown out your fear with your faith. Do you realize that faith crushes fear? Your faith crushes your worry and your anxiety and your fear. When you're afraid, you can crush your fear with your faith. What does that look like? Well, it means standing on the promises of God. It means standing on God's word and believing God's word. It's looking at your fear and saying, greater is he that is in me than it is in the world. If God is with me, who can be against me? When you're afraid, you stand on the promises of God. That's why it's so important to be digging deep into God's word. That's why it's so important to be memorizing scripture because the Bible says, thy word have I hidden my heart so I may not sin against thee. So here's what we're going to do as a church is for the next seven weeks of this series, we're going to challenge you to memorize a piece of scripture each week. Seven days, memorize one piece of scripture. If you want to take that journey with us, I'd encourage you on your connection card, there's a, an equip email. We're going to be sending that email out. You just check the box, and we will send you that piece of Scripture. We're going to start with the first one. It's one of my favorite Scriptures in all, all of the Bible. It says this, Joshua 1.9. He speaks directly to this. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Here's the same words Jesus says in Revelation. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a promise that when we suffer and when we endure pain, that God steps with us every single step of the way. May that encourage you today. If you're suffering right now in your life, you're dealing with pain, I promise you, God is stepping and he's fighting with you the whole journey. Wherever you go, he's there with you. What a promise to hang on to. We need to drown our fear out with faith. But then the second thing, he says this. He says, be faithful even to the point of death. Second thing I would say is to put your life on the line. Put your life on the line. And let me just stop and give you a caveat. Here's what I don't mean by this point. I don't mean leave church today and literally go put your life on the line in a dangerous situation. That's not what I mean. But what I mean by this point is to put your life on the line is to recognize that you were bought with a price. That God gave up his life and he bought your life and you are not your own. And to put your life on the line is to literally lay it on the altar and say, God, here am I, use me, lead me, break me, mold me, and use my life however you want. You see, to put your life on the line is to recognize that you are allowing God the freedom to control your life. You're giving God the freedom to say, hey, wherever you take me, whether it's painful or good, I'm in, God. Even your kids' lives even your husband's or your wife's lives, to lay them down on the altar and say, God, here am I, all of me, not portions, but every nook and cranny of who I am, here I am, use me. And the reason why we can do that, and I think this is something that we forgot, forgotten as Christians, is the reason why we can do that is because death is an upgrade. Death is an upgrade. Do you believe this today, that if you know Christ as your personal Savior, I mean, you surrendered your life to Jesus, you made him the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, if you know Jesus as per your personal Savior, do you realize that the best thing that can happen to you in life is death? What, what did you just say, Drew? Like, that doesn't, like, like, it doesn't sink in, but do you realize that if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you only start living when you die? When God decides to take your life, 
When he, God determines, hey, this is the end of you. The best part of, of life for us is death because we get to be with our Savior in paradise. And if you don't have that hope today, I would love to talk to you. Our campus pastors would love to talk to you. Your community group would love to talk to you. But I'm telling you today, I, I know this is hard to live out because I love my daughters and I love my wife and I don't want to leave them. But there's something in me as a man who loves Jesus with his whole heart. I can't wait for that moment where I breathe my last breath and I get to stand face to face with Jesus and say, I longed for this day. I waited for this day because death for us as Christians who have hope in Jesus' name, that death is the best thing that we can experience because we get to be with our Savior. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, there are far better things ahead than anything we leave behind. Do you live that way? Do you live that way? Or are you hanging on to the things of this world like they're more valuable than Jesus. There are far better things ahead than there are behind. James says this, verse 1, verse 12, he says this, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James says, hey, for those of you who are suffering and you stand firm in who God is, you will receive a crown of life. It's interesting, James used that word crown because so does Revelation at the end, verse 10. He says, I will give you life as the victor's crown. Now, culturally, culturally in Smyrna, a crown was one of the most significant pieces to, to achieve. In this culture, getting a crown was like a medal of honor in our culture. Every citizen desired to receive a crown because they were designated for the greatest of greats. It was designated for the best warriors in battle, the most powerful p politicians. A crown was something that everybody wanted, but the average Joe never received, specifically the Christians. And I find it so fascinating that Jesus says to them in their culture, he says, hey, if you endure and you hold on to me, I'll give you the best crown you will ever receive. And so we drowned out our fear with faith. We recognize that death is an upgrade. And I think the last thing that we can do is pray. You can never go wrong with prayer. 1 Peter 5, 9, it says this, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And so here's what we wanted to do as a church is we wanted to implement this in our service today. We wanted to pray over all four of our campuses together, and we wanted to do this two specific ways. The first way is we wanted to give you a moment before we sing any songs and just pray for our brothers and sisters across the world who are suffering for their faith, to fight on their behalf and to pray for them. But then secondly, we recognize in a church this large that there are many of us who are suffering right now, that are dealing with hard times in life, and you just need someone to pray for you, for someone to fight with you in this journey. And it would be our honor and privilege to do that. And so our band is going to sing a song in just a moment. And when they sing that song, we'll have people in red shirts that say, how can I pray for you? And if that's you today, man, whether life is really good or really bad, and you just want somebody to pray for you, it would be our honor. It would be our honor to pray with you, to walk with you, and to be the church for you. And so this is how Jesus ends this letter. Revelation 2, verse 11, he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To a church that was suffering, to a church that was dealing with a lot of pain, Jesus says, hey, I've got good news for you. One day your pain will end, and it will be with me in eternity. You have a hope that you can hang on to. And that's the same hope that we as Christians hang on to today, is that one day every tear and every painful moment in our life will be wiped away. And so I want to give you an opportunity right now to just bow your heads and to pray for those who are suffering, to pray for those around our world who are suffering for their faith. So you can go ahead and do that.